Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to have Dr. Amy Oxentenko here from the Mayo Clinic, and she's going to be introduced to us by Corey Siegel. Corey is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and in the Dartmouth Institute, and he is the director of our Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center in the section of gastroenterology and hepatology. Corey, come tell us about Amy. <coughs> Thanks, Rich. Good morning, everyone. I'm really honored to introduce my good friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Oxenteco from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I've met Amy about 14 years ago or so when we were uh, second-year GI fellows, and to watch her career blossom has really been a true uh, honor for me. Amy received her medical degree from the University of North Dakota, where she graduated AOA, and then she completed her residency, chief residency and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. After she was program director for the GI Fellowship for a number of years and the advanced GI Fellowship program director three years ago now, she transitioned to the role of internal medicine residency program director. If you don't know this, Mayo is the largest residency program in the world, I believe, with 185 residents at the time. Amy's in charge of them. <laughs> Uh, Amy's been an amazing educator in the field of GI. Everybody knows who she is in our field. She's been involved in CME as the co-director of the Mayo GI Board Review course and co-editor of the Mayo GI Board Review book, which I'm personally thankful for to help me pass boards when I retook them last year. Uh, she's been editor of the GI Mix apps, so if you looked and uh, used those questions before, you'll recognize her work, I'm sure. And she's also been the GI content writer for the internal medicine and training exam. Just a couple of leadership positions that always amaze me how you do all of this, Amy. She's been the chair of the American uh, College of Gastroenterology's Women in GI Committee. She co-created and co-chaired the ACG Train the Trainer program. She's the chair of the American Gastroenterological Association's Maintenance Certification Subcommittee. And in addition to all that, she has some clinical interests as well. We heard an amazing talk last night about mimics of celiac disease involved in malabsorption syndromes. And from a research uh, angle, really interested in looking at fellowship training, resident training, duty hours, clerical documentation, and issues relating to trainee wellness, so all sorts of good things that she's doing. Most importantly, Amy lives in Rochester with her son, Sean, her amazing boys, Evan and Isaac, and her very beautiful daughter, Abby. And you won't find anybody who knows Amy who wouldn't agree that whatever she does, whether it's teaching with her family, seeing patients in clinic, that she's beyond excellent in everything she does. So Amy, I'm really proud to show you off to Dartmouth, and I'm proud to show Dartmouth off to you, and thank you for coming. All right. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Corey. And um, I'm so honored to be here. It's my first trip to Dartmouth, and it's been fabulous so far. It's a very beautiful area, and so I'm excited to spend the rest of the day here. So when Dr. Siegel asked me um, what I was going to talk about at Medical Grand Rounds, I told him what the topic I had chosen. And he said, well, aren't you going to talk on an education topic? That's what you do. That's what you're passionate about. And even though that's something I'm passionate about, as an educator, I know sitting through 45 minutes of hearing about educational topics is not exciting for everybody. So I decided to do something that has been 
Probably one of the most um, fun things to do for talks. I've done it for a number of years now, and it, it kind of marries my love of having written questions for MixApp and in-training exam with really teaching uh, people some high-yield clinical pearls so that when you leave any kind of a didactic session, you feel like, wow, I took home a few points from that. And this was really originated from at the American College of Physicians. If any of you have gone to that session, they have a clinical pearls um, section that was created by Dr. Scott Litt and one of my colleagues in general in medicine at Mayo. So this is really uh, based on that sort of format. So the objectives over the next bit of time will be to describe the newest changes to the GI guidelines as they relate to common clinical scenarios, translate the GI guideline-based recommendations into high-value care and clinical practice, and then to recall one stated clinical pearl from each of the presented cases in the context of multiple choice questions. So usually when I pick my clinical pearls, it might be a random assortment of topics, but for these particularly, there have been just a very large number of GI guidelines that have been updated or have come out in the last five to six years. So all of the guideline, all of the cases I've picked are based on new guidelines that are either from 2012 to current day. So they're really new in the last four years, so hopefully I'll be able to teach you a few things in that regard. So everyone should have an audience response clicker. We'll see if this uh, hopefully works uh, with all of the great work that has been put into this in the last uh, 15 minutes to get these formatted, which I appreciate immensely. All right, so I'll read the case. A 52-year-old man presents for chronic reflux symptoms. He reports typical reflux symptoms for seven to eight years. He takes a PPI on demand with adequate symptom control. He has five to seven drinks weekly and a 30-pack year smoking history. He denies a family history of Barrett's esophagus or esophageal adenocarcinoma. He's overweight, and EGD is done to screen for Barrett's and is found to have a four-centimeter area in the distal esophagus consistent with Barrett's with biopsies confirming intestinal metaplasia with goblet cells without dysplasia. So which of the following is the next best step in management? No need for surveillance, repeat EGD in one year, repeat EGD in three to five years, endoscopic ablation or esophagectomy. So it looks like responses are coming in, so that means things are working. It's nice. Mm -hmm. All right, so it looks like we have 50 responses, so let's see if this projects for everybody there. Good. So it looks like 44% of individuals selected option C, repeat EGD in three to five years, and it looks like there was a smattering of people who either wanted to repeat in one year or those who wanted to do endoscopic ablation. Um, so we'll go over some of the guideline recommendations, but op option C is the uh, correct answer here based on the guidelines. Remember, again, this is someone without dysplasia on uh, their uh, histopathology. So repeating EGD in three to five years would be consistent with the new guidelines. So this guideline came out early 2016, so fairly fresh off the press on the management of Barrett's esophagus. So I think what this new guideline update really helps to clarify is who needs to be screened for Barrett's esophagus. And so this isn't too different from previous, uh, with some exceptions on upcoming slides. But again, they state that men with chronic, which is defined as greater than five years, and or frequent, meaning weekly, heartburn, or reflux, and then they have to have two or more risk factors for Barrett's esophagus, which includes age greater than 50 years, uh, Caucasian race, Central obesity, so this is defined as either a waist circumference or by waist-hip ratio, not based on BMI. Current or past smoking history, and then a confirmed first-degree relative with either Barrett's or esophageal adenocarcinoma. 
What the new guideline states is that actually women um, should not be screened for Barrett's esophagus. They do have a caveat that you could consider screening in those with multiple risk factors, but they also state that, that that's with a low level of evidence to support that recommendation. And those risk factors really being the same as those I stated for men, the only difference is the central obesity was redefined based on different waist circumference and different waist hip ratios compared to men. So again, really a soft, um, soft recommendation. Really, we should rethink our screening on women. They also state that screening for the general population is not recommended. Certainly it should not be offered to someone who has a limited life expectancy and could not tolerate the therapies if you were to find Barrett's. And I think this is also really important, that a repeat endoscopic evaluation is not recommended in someone who's had an initial negative evaluation for Barrett's esophagus. So just this week in clinic, I saw a 38-year-old gentleman who was referred for other issues who's had four screening uh, EGDs for Barrett's esophagus, they've never, it's never been found. So really he probably didn't warrant at least three of those upper endoscopies. So we have to be mindful of that in this cost conscious environment. So they also state what should we do for intervals. So those patients with Barrett's without dysplasia, the surveillance is three to five years. And again, that relates to this case. No longer do we need to do a repeat EGD within that first year to make sure we didn't miss dysplasia. For those with low-grade dysplasia, the old guidelines had us repeat an upper endoscopy within six months, again, to make sure we didn't miss anything or higher-grade dysplasia. But now they have recommended as the preferred therapy for low-grade dysplasia that we do endoscopic ablative therapy. Alternatively, you could have someone undergo surveillance every 12 months. And now with high-grade dysplasia, again, uh, endoscopic ablative therapy is preferred. So for me, this is almost easier than the old guidelines. No dysplasia, three to five years. Lower high-grade dysplasia, endoscopic ablative therapy. So I think that's what you should take home. So in patients with confirmed Barrett's esophagus and no dysplasia, endoscopic surveillance is not required for three to five years. All right, case number two. A 52-year-old man presents for a hospital follow-up where he's been admitted with recurrent melanin and hematochesia. It was his fourth episode within the last two months. He's undergone two EGDs, which were negative, and two colonoscopies that showed diverticulate in the sigmoid colon. Blood was noted in the terminal ileum above the scope reach. His history is notable for hypertension that's well-treated but no abdominal surgeries. He denies aspirin or NSAID use, and his exam is normal with a hemoglobin of 10.8. So which of the following is the next best step in management? CT enterography, balloon-assisted endoscopy, mesenteric angiography, video capsule endoscopy, or no further tests at this time. All right, let's see what people selected. Outstanding. So 86% shows video capsule endoscopy. So everyone seems to be well-versed in this. So I may not be able to teach you a whole lot with this case, but let's uh, go over a few pearls. So this was a new guideline, came out in 2015, the management of small bowel bleeding. And what they suggested based on the workup of small bowel bleeding. So you have someone suspected small bowel bleeding, 
This makes up about 5 to 10 percent of bleeding cases. Most of these are likely going to be vascular ectasias in the small bowel. And you can subcategorize this. Is this occult? Is this overt? But in either case, the guidelines suggest that if they've only had a single upper or lower endoscopy, you might want to consider repeating the endoscopy from whichever end you think is more likely to have uh, bleeding. There's probably upwards of a, maybe a 25 percent yield, depending on the patient, of repeating the upper or lower endoscopy, depending on where you think the bleeding source is. Is. And certainly if you find something there, you would treat. But if that's negative, then you need to go on to perform a small bowel evaluation. And how the guideline breaks down is what is the uh, most ideal test is first you have to ask yourself, do they have known history of small bowel inflammatory bowel disease, known radiation to the abdominal cavity, suspected stenosis of the small bowel, or prior small bowel surgery? If that's the case, they should actually have a CT or MR enterography as the first step. But if that's not the case and they have no obstructive symptoms, then video capsule endoscopy is the preferred modality to image the small bowel. Now, if you do the video capsule and it's negative, then you can go on to CT or MR enterography, making sure that you're not missing a mass lesion or tumor of the small bowel. Similarly, if the patient had first had the CT or MR enterography because they have a risk factor and nothing is seen in terms of narrowing or stenosis and a bleeding source is not identified, then you can safely go on to video capsule endoscopy. And certainly, if you are still concerned about obstruction, you can do a patency capsule first to make sure the patient won't run into retention issues. So the clinical pearl here is that video capsule endoscopy should be considered first line for suspected small bowel bleeding after upper or lower bleeding sources have been ruled out, reserving anaerography for those with negative results of or contraindications to video capsule endoscopy. All right, case three. A 46-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency room for sudden onset epigastric pain, nausea, and vomiting. She's healthy and has on no medications. Her exam reveals her to be afebrile, tachycardic, obese with decreased bowel sounds and tenderness in her epigastric region. Her white count is 14.7 and lipase is 7,800. Liver tests are normal. So which of the following is the next best step? CT scan of the abdomen, ultrasound of the abdomen, IV antibiotics, total parenteral nutrition, or serum triglycerides? So 52% selected ultrasound of the abdomen, and then there was a split uh, between some wanted to do a CT and some wanted to do serum triglycerides. So certainly many times when we receive these patients on our inpatient GI service, they often have already had a CT scan of the abdomen, um, but really that's not based on guideline recommendation or uh, cost-effective practice. So ultrasound of the abdomen is the correct answer in this case. So this guideline is from 2013. I think this is a very helpful guideline for anyone that manages uh, inpatients who have pancreatitis. So it really has a very nice stepwise approach into the diagnosis, the management, and the what and whatnots of how to care for these patients. So again, they emphasize that to make a diagnosis of pancreatitis, you really only need to have abdominal pain that's consistent and then pancreatic biomarkers that are three times the upper limit of normal. 
The only time you need to do imaging such as CT is if they don't fulfill those two criteria with typical abdominal pain or let's say their pancreatic biomarkers are less than three times the upper limit of normal. So CT or MRI is only required for those where the diagnosis is not clear or in those who really are failing to improve after two or three days. Because remember, sometimes people get the CT initially um, thinking they're looking for necrosis, but that's too early for necrosis to show up. So you may be falsely reassured if you CT them early, don't see necrosis, and then the pa you, you undermanage the patient. The guidelines, though, say that everyone should have a transabdominal ultrasound to look for gallstones. Remember, alcohol and gallstones are the two most common causes, and if we find gallstones and we can take out their gallbladder, we may pre uh, prevent another episode of acute pancreatitis. So we can do preventative type of care by looking and managing the most common etiology. I know when we get these patients, oftentimes, the, you know, as residents, they're, they're eager to make sure they've thought of all of the differentials, so they order calcium and triglycerides and all of the differentiating things. But actually, the guidelines say in the ab only you need to check uh, triglycerides in the absence of gallstones or in the absence of significant alcohol history. Uh, if that's the case and you don't have either one of those presents, you can check it. Otherwise, it would not be necessary to check um, in, in most cases. So remember that hydration is still the cornerstone of therapy for these patients. We, we likely underhydrate. These folks need a quarter to a half liter of isotonic crystalloid an hour unless they have significant cardiovascular, renal, or pulmonary disease that can't tolerate that. And um, some of the studies have shown that lactated ringer is probably preferable based on the makeup of that fluid. So remember that early is important. So these patients need to get this fluid started early within the first 12 to 24 hours. If you don't think about this till after 48 hours, it's probably too late for them to have significant benefit. And I know when I was in training, we always looked at the hematocrit, the rising hematocrit, but BUN is also very effective. So if you see a BUN level of 20 to 25 that continues to rise in that first day, that's a pretty ominous sign of severe pancreatitis. So I know some of the choices in ERCP was not something that people had selected, but remember, even someone with biliary pancreatitis typically does not need an ERCP. It's only if they have concomitant acute cholangitis do they need an ERCP. And remember, antibiotics are really similarly only needed for those patients with cholangitis or infected necrosis, but not those with severe acute pancreatitis or sterile necrosis. And then finally, nutrition is another option. We probably are very are ultra conservative in feeding these folks, but folks with mild pancreatitis, as soon as their pain starts to resolve, we can feed them. And the guidelines say you can start with a low-fat, solid diet. You don't need to start with clear liquids only. So that may help with getting patients out of the hospital once they're starting to turn around a bit faster. And then those with severe pancreatitis, enteral is still preferred. And you can do this via nasogastric or nasal jejunal. Really reserving parenteral nutrition for those who really can't tolerate enteral feeds. So the clinical pearl here is aggressive IV hydration and ultrasound imaging of the abdomen are required for all patients with acute pancreatitis, but reserving CT imaging, antibiotics, or TPN in those specific clinical settings. All right, case four. 28-year-old woman presents, or man, sorry, presents with difficulty swallowing for three years. His symptoms are intermittent and only with solid foods. He notes mild periodic reflux, but no weight loss. He's had one prior trip to the ER for food impaction and has seasonal allergies, but is otherwise healthy. He takes no medications. He undergoes an EGD, which reveals longitudinal furrows and friable esophageal mucosa without strictures. 
Biopsies of the esophagus show eosinophils greater than 15 per high-powered field with normal gastric and small bowel biopsies. So which of the following is the next best step in management? Proton pump inhibitor trial, oral liquid budesonide, swallowed aerosolized fluticasone, oral prednisone, or esophageal dilation. So that's a nice stepwise uh, distribution there. So 45% uh, selected a proton pump inhibitor trial, and then some people went for the topical steroid therapy. So certainly I think many of you recognize that this patient has a fairly typical and classic presentation suspected of eosinophilic esophagitis, which you're correct in that uh, thinking. But the guidelines would suggest that those of you who chose a proton pump inhibitor trial as the first step would be the right answer here. So we'll walk through this. This is the ACG guideline that came out in 2013, an evidence-based approach to the diagnosis and management of esophageal eosinophilia and EOE. So here's how you have to make a diagnosis of EOE. You need specific criteria, and it's characterized by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction, often dysphagia. They may have food impactions. They have an eosinophil predominant inflammation greater than 15 per high-powered field. But number three here is key, is that the mucosa eosinophilia is isolated to the esophagus and persists after a PPI trial. Secondary causes of eosinophilia are excluded, and a response to treatment is supportive but not required. So really, if a patient has not been on a PPI previously, not many times we see these patients, they've already been on a PPI, but in this patient who's PPI naive, doing a PPI trial uh, would be recommended. So why is, this, why is this even necessary? So in the guidelines, they talk about this, and this is certainly a mouthful, PPI-related esophageal eosinophilia, or PPRE. So what these are patients who have esophageal symptoms, and they have esophageal eosinophilia, and they tend to have symptomatic and histologic response to PPI therapy. And there's some question, is this distinct from EOE? Is this just a spectrum of reflux disease? Um, but given that eosinophilia and symptoms improve with PPI therapy alone in this subset of patients, um, that's why PPI therapy is recommended first. So to exclude this entity, they should have a two-month PPI trial or course first. They're supposed to then have a follow-up EGD with repeat histologic sampling to see if that eosinophilia persists. And if so, then you would treat them as though they have EOE, either with fluticasone or budesonide for eight weeks. So again, a diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis can be made in a patient with esophageal symptoms, esophageal eosinophilia, eosinophilia that's isolated to the esophagus and then persists after a PPI trial. All right, case number five. A 50-year-old woman calls for recommendations after her first screening colonoscopy. She's healthy and takes no medications and has no family history of colorectal disease. In review of her colonoscopy report, her preparation was excellent and the colon was fully examined. She had a 1.3-centimeter flat polyp in the ascending colon and several 3-millimeter polyps in the rectum. The polyps were fully removed, and the histology from the ascending colon revealed a sessile serrated adenoma with no dysplasia, with the rectum showing hyperplastic polyps. So when would you advise her to undergo her next colonoscopy? 
So six months, one year, three years, five years, or 10 years. Let's see what people selected here. Again, a very nice central distribution. 49% uh, selected option C, three years. And then there were some people divided uh, between one year or five years was the second most common. So in this clinical scenario, given the size of her polyp, 1.3 centimeters, and being a sessile serrated adenoma, the guidelines would suggest a three-year screening uh, or surveillance interval here. So option C is the correct answer. So this is based on the guidelines that came out 2012, an update on the U.S. Preventative Task Force on Colorectal Cancer uh, Surveillance. So, you know, if you go back to our medical school physiology, remember that 70 to 80 percent of, col of colon cancers originate through that adenoma carcinoma sequence, where that original mutation is in that APC mutation. So serrated polyps are really through a different pathway. So we know that that makes up 70 to 80% of colon cancers, like I said, through that APC adenoma carcinoma sequence. But 20 to 30% of colon cancers originate through some other pathway, through this hypermethylation pathway, rather than that APC mutation pathway. And just like adenomas are the precursor to the typical carcinoma, serrated adenomas are the precursor to cancers that develop in this hypermethylation pathway. So it's really through two different mechanisms that these, um, these cancers develop and these polyps develop. So we know that these sessile serrated adenomas have malignant potential, and lesions with dysplasia really represent more advanced lesions. So you think about a typical adenoma, all of them have dysplasia, right? But when we see a sessile serrated adenoma, if they also report to have dysplasia, that represents a more kind of aggressive histology than a typical adenoma with dysplasia. And they're at increased risk of developing cancer in that case. The thing that is challenging about these sorts of polyps, and the endoscopist in the room will, um, will acknowledge this, that these are challenging to see. They're, they're more often right-sided. They tend to be flat, hence the sessile name. And they tend to be covered by a mucus layer, which can make them challenging to see, especially if there's any stool or residual fluid in the right colon. So the task force recommended the, these surveillance um, intervals. So a five-year interval is recommended if they have a sessile serrated adenoma that's less than 10 millimeters in size, and there's no dysplasia present. But a three-year interval, as in this case, would be recommended if you have a serrated adenoma that's greater than or equal to 10 millimeters in size, or if there's dysplasia present in that cell serrated adenoma. And then what's a little bit confusing to some people in the guidelines is they also say a three-year interval is recommended for these, quote, traditional serrated adenomas with or without dysplasia. So what these traditional serrated adenomas are, these are really a histologic sort of thing. Back, you know, a number of years ago, we used to call these types of flat polyps traditional serrated adenomas. But then once we discovered, boy, there's this whole new histology of serrated adenomas, this old, you know, serrated adenomas, we knew it is now called traditional. We rarely see that reported. Um, it's really the sessile serrated adenoma that are the right-sided lesions, have this higher risk. The traditional serrated adenomas tend to be left-sided and less risk uh, in that regard. 
So all of this, the three or five year, assumes a few things. It assumes the bowel prep was adequate. It assumes that the polyp was also entirely removed. So if they don't meet both of those features, then a one year interval would be recommended to make sure you've had an adequate look of the entire colon, um, uh, well prepped. So patients with sessile serrated adenomas that are less than 10 millimeters and have no dysplasia should have surveillance colonoscopy in five years, while those with sessile serrated adenomas greater than or equal to 10 millimeters or with dysplasia or these, quote, old traditional serrated adenomas should have surveillance in three years. All right, case number six. A 61-year-old woman presents with diarrhea for nine months. She reports six to eight watery stools daily with occasional fecal incontinence. She reports minimal abdominal cramps but denies weight loss or blood in her stools. History is significant for osteoporosis for which she takes alendronate. She denies any other medications. She winters in Maui each year but denies other travel. Her exam is normal. Serum IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody is negative. Stool testing for pathogens is negative. And colonoscopy with random biopsies reveals collagenous colitis. So what should the following is the next best step in management? Prednisone, mesalamine, cholestyramine, bismuth, or budesonide? Good. So 51% of you chose uh, budesonide, and then the next most common were mesalamine and bismuth. So we'll go through the most recent guideline, but in this case, given the severity of this patient's symptoms, um, budesonide or option E would be the preferred recommendation. So this guideline, again, fairly fresh off the press, 2016, a technical review and guideline came out on the management of microscopic colitis. Very helpful review. So what this guideline suggests is you, if you have someone with symptomatic microscopic colitis, and it really, um, whether they have mild to moderate symptoms versus severe, the first step always should be to review their medication list, see if there's any offending drugs that uh, were started at the time that their diarrhea began. So for microscopic colitis, that this might be PPI therapy, NSAIDs, SSRIs. There are a number of medications that have been associated. However, even once you stop that medication, that patient is likely going to need symptomatic therapy to start feeling better more quickly. And the recommendations are that budesonide 9 milligrams per day would be the treatment of choice. Again, remember they come in 3 milli uh, milligram capsules. So if a patient, however, has a reaction to budesonide, for many patients, the second bullet, cost prohibitive, is certainly a reality, or patient preference uh, dictates something other. Second-line therapies could be considered, and so for those of you who chose bismuth or mesalamine, that wouldn't be unreasonable as second-line therapies, uh, and prednisone is also included in this. In this case, I threw in the caveat that she winters in Maui as a little clue that she probably can afford uh, budesonide. So. <laughs> So then you could ask yourself, once you've done the budesonide, nine milligrams a day, is there a clinical response? So if there is, the guideline would suggest you treat for eight weeks. 
So let's say there's no clinical response. Let's say you do nine milligrams a day of budesonide and they're not responding, then it's extremely important to look for coexisting causes of diarrhea. Probably the most important to be to look for celiac disease if you've not already excluded that, given the very high association between microscopic colitis and celiac disease. So in that patient who you treated for eight weeks and they responded and then you stopped therapy, what happens if they have a clinical recurrence? We know this is extremely common in these patients. And I tell patients to almost expect that. It's not a failure of their first therapy. It's just really a nature of the disease. The guidelines would suggest they go back on budesonide. You try to get them at a dose of six milligrams or lower, and you do that daily for six to 12 months before tapering off again. So the clinical pearl here is that with symptomatic microscopic colitis, budesonide is recommended as first-line therapy. Bismuth, mesalamine, or prednisone should be reserved for those who have an adverse reaction to budesonide or in those in whom the medication is cost prohibitive. All right, case seven. 68-year-old man presents to the emergency room with lower abdominal pain and hematochesia. His pain began the day prior and has continued. He noted the onset of loose stools with bright red blood today. His past history is significant for atrial fibrillation. On exam, his blood pressure is 88 over 60, heart rate is 110 and irregular, and he has tenderness in the lower abdomen. The CT reveals inflammatory changes only in the right colon concerning for ischemia. So which of the following is the next best step in management? Colonoscopy emergent surgical consultation, rate control with beta blocker, conservative therapy, or order and await stool cultures. Responses are coming in a little slower on this one. People are thinking. All right, let's see what people selected. All right, 56% chose emergent surgical consultation. A smaller rate uh, recommended conservative therapy. Um, so if you, based on the, uh, the most recent guideline that just came out on the management of ischemic uh, colitis, emergent surgical consultation would be the right answer here. Because in this patient, you can see he's hypotensive, tachycardia, has tachycardia, but also concerning is that he has isolated right-sided ischemia, which is really a clue that this patient has severe colitis, and you have to be concerned about a small bowel involvement, and these patients do very poorly. So emergent surgical consultation is the right answer. That doesn't mean they'll get a surgery, but to get a surgeon on board uh, to follow very closely with you is very important. So again, this came out late 2015. The guideline on the uh, epidemiology risk factors, patterns of presentation and diagnosis and management of colonic ischemia. So testing to be done for suspected ischemia. So they recommend that a CT with IV and oral contrast is really the imaging of choice if you have suspected colonic ischemia, and that's to help to assess the distribution, given that does help to prognosticate these patients. 
If there's any concern about uh, acute mesenteric ischemia, remember these are two different entities. Colonic ischemia is usually related to a low flow state, hypotension, those sorts of things, whereas acute mesenteric ischemia is usually an embolic or thrombotic phenomenon. So if there's any concern when a patient presents, you know, this patient with atrial fibrillation could be a low flow state, but they very well could have embolized something as well, and you're not sure, then multiphasic CT angio could be considered in that case um, if they're suspected right side ischemia or acute mesenteric ischemia. They also recommend if the diagnosis is uncertain, an early colonoscopy within the first 48 hours with biopsies can be helpful to confirm ischemia. And again, you need to do that early because the, the colon mucosa heals fairly quickly and you may miss those changes. But certainly if someone has peritonitis, if they have pneumatosis on imaging or other severe features, I mean, this patient was hypotensive, tachycardic, um, a colonoscopy would not be warranted to be safe in that, in that case. So all patients should have a careful medication review because you have to wonder, you know, was this just from a low flow state or was there some medication that uh, has done this? Some of the constipating, uh, constipation-inducing medications have resulted in colonic ischemia. Some of the immunomodulators, um, certainly illicit drugs. So in the young person with colonic ischemia, think about cocaine and other um, drugs such as that. And for any young patients with colonic ischemia, in addition to looking for drugs of abuse, they also should be considered to have a thrombophilia workup. In the young patient with colonic ischemia or in the patient with recurrent colonic ischemia, that's otherwise not explained. And this guideline highlighted, based on some studies, that um, those with chronic kidney disease are really at increased risk of mortality. And it's, you know, it's hard to know, is that because they come in and then we CT someone who already has chronic kidney disease and we make them worse? But overall, um, their mortality risk is significantly elevated from the general population. So think about those patients in particular to keep a very close watch on. But isolated right-sided colonic ischemia is associated with higher mortality rates compared to any other pattern of colonic ischemia and those are the patients that need an emergent surgical consultation. So in the guideline, they really classify patients as moderate or mild, moderate, or severe. So those who are typically claimed or deemed mild have typical features, it's segmental on imaging, not isolated to the right side, and they have no risk factors for moderate to severe disease. So for those patients, you can observe supportive care. For those patients, though, with moderate classification, these are patients with colonic ischemia, and then they have up to three uh, features. So those features they've defined as either male gender, hypotension or tachycardia, abdominal pain without bleeding, endoscopic colonic ulcerations, and then certain laboratory features. You can see high BUN likely related to their vasoconstrictive state, volume depletion, also renal insufficiency, but low hemoglobin, high uh, LDH, low serum sodium, or high white blood cell count. So in those moderate risk population, you, give the, you correct their fluid abnormalities, make sure they are uh, well hydrated, you consider broad spectrum antibiotic therapy, and you would get a surgical consultation in that regard. But those that are deemed severe are any patient with colonic ischemia and three, uh, more than three of those moderate factors listed above, or any one of the following factors, including peritoneal signs, pneumatosis or portal vein gas, gain green that is seen endoscopically if you were brave enough to put a scope in them, or those with pancolonic or isolated right side ischemia, and in those patients, an emergent surgical consultation is recommended. They probably should be really observed in a higher level of care, correct their cardiovascular hemodynamics, and then again, broad spectrum antibiotic therapy. 
So a CT with contrast and colonoscopy are useful to make a diagnosis of and risk stratify patients with colonic ischemia, but those with peritonitis, pneumatosis, isolated right side ischemia, or pancolonic ischemia have poor outcomes and need emergent surgical consultation. All right, last case. A 53-year-old woman recently moved to town and wants to establish care. She was diagnosed with celiac disease 10 years ago during a workup for abdominal pain. In review of her records from that time, she had a positive IgA gliadin and antibody with small bowel biopsies that were normal. She's been on a gluten-free diet for 10 years, which she admits can be hard to follow and has not alleviated her abdominal pain. Currently, her exam is normal, and her labs reveal a normal IgA tissue transglutaminase antibody. So which of the following is the next best step in management? HLA genotyping, IgA gliadin antibody, endomysial antibody, EGD with biopsies, or no further testing? Let's see what people have selected. Very interesting. So 36% didn't want to do any further testing. Um, and then we have a smattering of people who want to do HLA testing, endomysal antibody, or EGD uh, with biopsies. I can tell you this is probably one of the most common clinical scenarios that I see in our celiac clinic. And in this patient, for those of you who didn't want to do any further testing, you know, this is someone who's not very satisfied being on her gluten-free diet and hasn't helped with her pain. And if you look back, this is where it's always the most helpful to look back when the diagnosis was made and to make sure it was made on legitimate grounds. So this is someone who had a very nonspecific serologic antibody that was checked and was positive. And she had normal small bowel biopsies. So it really makes you question, she probably never had celiac disease to begin with, and that's why she hasn't responded to a gluten-free diet. So this patient probably has either irritable bowel syndrome or something else to explain her symptoms. So you might do her a world of good by clarifying for her whether or not she has celiac disease, at least liberalize her diet, and then treat whatever her underlying bowel issue is more effectively. So based on the guidelines in this patient, option A, HLA haplotyping, would actually be the next best test because you may be able to tell her whether or not she has celiac disease based on that HLA testing. So we'll go through that. So this celiac disease guideline, again, another great guideline, came out in 2013 on the diagnosis and management of celiac disease. So a few things I want to highlight before I go through the algorithm in a patient like I presented. So remember that testing really should ideally be done on a gluten-containing diet. Once someone has gone on a gluten-free diet, the sensitivity of serologic titers or of histology decreases significantly, and those serologic titers can be affected within months. So remember that you should do it ideally with them consuming gluten. The guidelines also say that the IgA-based tissue transglutaminase antibody is the single preferred screening test for patients um, when you're looking for celiac disease if they're greater than two years of age. There's always that concern about selective IgA deficiency in patients, and could you miss patients with celiac disease by only doing an IgA TTG? So if there is concern about IgA deficiency, which may occur in upwards of 5% of these patients, you can either do a combined IgG-IgA-based assay or simply checking an I a serum immunoglobulin IgA level. 
So there's really two IgG-based titers that are commonly used nowadays. One is the tissue transglutaminase IgG, but there's this kind of the newest serologic kit on the block, so to speak, is a deaminated gliadin peptide. So this is different than the old gliadin antibody, which is, again, not very sensitive or specific. The deaminated gliadin peptide um, performs much better, probably not quite like a TTG, but very close, and it's very helpful in this setting in patients who might have IgA deficiency their IgG-based titer could be helpful in that regard. So again, the guidelines say native gliadin testing or the anti-gliadin antibodies is not recommended at all in practice anymore for primary detection of celiac disease in adults because of that poor sensitivity and specificity. That's where a lot of these patients, I think, got mislabeled as having celiac disease. But again, remember, this is different than the deaminated gliadin peptide. And lately, when I've seen outside reports, sometimes the report on an, someone's outside labs will say gliadin antibody, but then when I look in the fine print, it will clarify that it was a deaminated gliadin peptide. So it's important to read the fine print. The guidelines also say that doing these serologic panels, meaning like a gunshot approach and let's check everything, is not recommended in most cases where you're doing just typical, you want to make a, a, a case diagnosis. That does increase the sensitivity, but it unfortunately reduces the specificity, so you're going to come up with more false positives in that regard. And remember that if someone has a TTG and it's negative, but they have fairly classic features, you know, diarrhea, weight loss, iron deficiency, premature metabolic bone disease, you shouldn't stop with that negative serology. These serologies are not perfect, and even a TTG with a sensitivity of 95% or so, you're going to miss some cases that have a classic presentation if you stop with the serology in that case. So if they have classic features, negative serology, go on to histology. So the HLA testing, remember HLA DQ2 or DQ8 is present in nearly all patients with celiac disease. The caveat is 30 to 40% of us in the general population also carry these haplotypes. But this really has, you know, 100% negative, predict negative predictive value. So if you check in and your patient is negative for these, you can tell them they do not have celiac disease. If it's positive, then you still have to consider whether you do a gluten challenge or do other testing. So who do you use HLA testing for? You can consider it in those who you want to evaluate. They're already on a gluten-free diet, and they've had no or inadequate prior testing for celiac. They have discrepant serology and histology. One is positive, one's negative. And you can also use it in certain patients, such as those with Down or Turner, who had increased risk of celiac disease, to do one-time testing with haplotyping. If they're not, if they don't carry the permissive genes, you really don't have to worry about celiac disease later on when they present with any GI symptoms. So this is what you can do um, in a patient like I presented who's on a gluten-free diet and you want to confirm the diagnosis. So the first thing is to do baseline serologies. If they have, truly have celiac disease, it may be that they're getting some inadvertent gluten in their diet. So checking a baseline serology, which in that stem, remember, I already gave you and it was negative for her. So if that's positive, they probably have celiac disease. You go on to get histology, and if it's positive, you confirm the diagnosis. Most of the time, however, it's negative, and that's where you go on to do HLA haplotyping to look for the presence of HLA DQ2 or DQ8. If it's negative, then you can tell them you don't have celiac disease. Again, for some patients, they're really happy to learn that they don't have celiac disease. For others, they may be disappointed, and you can tell them, listen, you can continue your gluten-free diet if you think it makes you feel better, but that's also important in the medical record to know they don't have celiac disease because if, if they truly do have it or you're suspicious of it, you're going to order additional testing later on if they present with a variety of symptoms. So if it's positive, then you're not off the hook. 
you may have to try to convince your uh, patient to go on a gluten challenge. And the nice thing about the gluten challenge is the time frame has been shortened up. So you could try a two-week gluten challenge. If the patient just says, I am absolutely unable to tolerate beyond that, you can go on to get histology and see if you see inflammatory or histologic changes. If you can convince them to do six additional weeks of a gluten challenge, so eight weeks total, that is going to increase your yield. At that point, you repeat the serology, and if it's positive, go on to get histology. What the guidelines suggest, though, is after that eight weeks, let's say their serology is still negative, then what you should do is repeat another serology up to six weeks later because there can be a delayed rise in that serologic time after exposure to gluten in these patients. So the clinical pearl here is that in a patient previously diagnosed with celiac disease who's not had the diagnosis firmly established and who's on a gluten-free diet, HLA genotyping or haplotyping should be the next step after negative serology to try to exclude celiac disease before embarking on a gluten challenge. So that's all I have. Hopefully you learned a thing or two in the last 45 minutes, and thank you for your time. That's uh, fantastic, Amy. Thank you. There's no question of why you're such a decorated educator at Mayo and nationally and why you get asked to do so much on, on teaching our fellows, residents, and, uh, and colleagues. Uh, questions from the gang? Dr. Levy in the back. Don't stand up. Uh, <laughs> Amy, thanks, thanks very much. A really pithy, great talk. Uh, some really high-yield points. I have uh, a question and I guess a comment. Um, one question, specifically microscopic colitis. In my review of the literature, I've always had the impression that it may suffer from some referral bias. Not a lot of population-based data, apart from some of your institution. And I always uh, had the impression a lot of the people that come see us as gastroenterologists have to graduate the point of needing to be mm -hmm. in the guidelines you pointed out. But I think there's a subset of people who have more milder disease that would do just fine with symptomatic treatment with regular old paramide. And I, I always suspected that that rebound of up to 80% from coming off budesonide would be a marker of more severe patients. So I wonder if that's something that you guys do in your practice. Uh, a, a second question, but very differently, as an educator at many levels, um, nationally known, um, those of us who aren't lucky enough to come to an amyops and tank top, what do you tell your residents for sort of review on this kind of pithy? There's so many resources out there. Right. You can't review all the guidelines. Right. Topic. So, what references do you tell your residents to go to to, to learn this high yield stuff yep. and practice their work? Yep. So the first question on microscopic colitis, you're right, in the past before this updated guideline, if someone had mild disease, we would use, you know, loperamide or antidiarrheal agents or bismuth. Um, I think you could argue, could you still use that for symptomatic control? The guidelines say that even with budesonide, those patients may benefit from additional, you know, antidiarrheal agents. I think if you think about it, though, if there's an inflammatory or lymphocytic response in the small bowel, which or in the colon, which you have with either lymphocytic or collateral, colitis, those antidiarrheal agents are probably not doing a whole lot to decrease that inflammatory sort of state. Bismuth may have some anti-inflammatory properties in the salicylate, but otherwise probably not. So it may be that in those patients with mild cases, if it, if it was medication-induced, let's say you think it's related to medication, stopping the medication 
endimodium or loperamide with someone with mild disease may be all you need to do. So you certainly could try that. I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, but certainly if it's, a, you know, by the time we see them, you're right, they're usually having such significant symptoms that we move right to budesonide if we can get away with that. But I don't think it's wrong if they have mild disease and maybe it's medication related to try an imodium trial. If it's not medication related and you use imodium or loperamide, it may be that they have a higher likelihood of not responding and having recurrent uh, symptoms. In terms of um, what, we, what I would recommend to trainees, so when I'm on service, you're right, they have the biggest issue trainees have is there's so many great resources, but how do I have a stepwise approach to staying up with these guidelines? So what I usually do, at least for GI when they're on their GI service, I walk them through our you know four main society guideline page, or pages. So I bring them to the ACG side, AGA, ASGE, and the AASLD websites. And I show them the tab to where to find the guidelines. And most of these newest guidelines that have come out from our societies, what, what is really nice and what I tell them is really a helpful thing is usually Usually on that first page or so of the guideline, there's this nice summary of all of the key points from that entire guideline. So, you know, usually as you read a guideline, there's little you know, summary points as it goes through each section, but the newest guidelines usually have all of that summarized in one page long kind of table on the first or second page. So I say, listen, if you don't, if you have only 20 minutes to read today, take this acute pancreatitis page with all of the kind of key points from this guideline, read that and know that, that's gonna really be your take home points. So I think they can get through a lot of guideline reading if they read that. Now certainly if they want more detail, they can go into that, but that's how I usually guide them to keep up on those guidelines. It's a good question. The Mayo Board Review book written by Dr. Oxentenko works too. <laughs> Other questions? Dr. Rigby. Uh, two questions. Quick one. Why is budesonide so expensive when it's been around forever? And the second question is, on the topic of guidelines, have the guidelines influenced how, what payers do, or have they influenced um, malpractice for lawsuits? Um, going to the first one, I guess I can't speak to why budesonide continues to be so expensive, but hopefully, you know, um, I, it, it seems like I have more patients that they're, they're having to pay out of pocket less. Now, what I usually do when I prescribe it, because I have no idea how much that patient is going to pay, when I submit all of these prescriptions electronically to the pharmacy, I always put in the comment box for the pharmacist, before filling this prescription, please call the patient and tell them their out-of-pocket expense for this medication, um, and call me if the patient, it's, if it's cost prohibitive. Because otherwise what happens, the patient goes to the pharmacy and says, I can't, I can't afford that, and then they're left with no therapy. So at least I try to close that loop in that regard, um, but I can't otherwise explain the cost. And Hopefully, with time, it should it should go down. In terms of the um, the coverage or the you know provide or the insurance payment and that sort of thing, if something's in a guideline, I think the guideline certainly helps support that, right? So if I think about if I've had a patient who an insurance company has said, oh, based on you know why are you doing a colonoscopy in three years for this patient? We're not covering it because it, it can be it should be five years. If you can refer to a guideline to say no, this recent guideline says for this patient with this SSL serrated adenoma of this size, it should be three years. I think if you have supportive evidence like that, I've been successful in having those sorts of things covered. So I think it does help in our practice to support that sort of care. Um, I guess I can't speak so much for the malpractice, but again, I think if we're practicing in an evidence-based way, and these guidelines we hope are put together in an evidence-based way, you have to read them because some of the recommendations may say low support with low quality evidence, then I think you have to be cautious in those regards. But 
the things that are put in with high level of support and evidence, I think you can feel comfortable about practicing in that regard. Thanks. Dr. Rothstein. Amy, thank you for this talk. That you had a caveat around this handling of the cephalocerated adenomas, mm -hmm. in that there had to be a good prep and an adequate look to the symptom, et cetera. I'd say that on the Barrett's case, that's true too, based on numbers of biopsies. Mm -hmm. So the guidelines that would say that you could wait through five years assume that there have been adequate right. numbers of biopsies taken by someone, right. which isn't always the case, like for you with a referral right. relation, we right. sometimes see that someone took a couple of biopsies when they should have taken 16 to 30 biopsies. Yeah. And so that maybe a caveat that would be in there. Yeah, that's, that's really important to, to mention because you're right, when, when we're doing an endoscopy and we see mucosa that may look like Barrett's and it's a first endoscopy and we're just not sure, you're right, we may take a few biopsies to confirm that, but we have to make sure in someone who has, let's say, a five centimeter area, think if it's that obvious endoscopically, hopefully we take enough that first time, but you're right, if we look back or if the patient is referred in and they only had two biopsies of that five centimeter Barrett's area and we don't see dysplasia, that's probably inadequate to really give them that longer surveillance interval, so that's a great point. Great. I have one practical question about ischemic coli. So was, where was the, a better question? Oh, better question, Dr. Lacey. Um, help educate everybody about the pancreatitis case and just point out the need for expedited cholecystectomy in those patients with colostone pancreatitis and Absolutely. Yeah. So, any patient who has suspected gallstone-induced pancreatitis, they really, ideally, should leave the hospital without their gallbladder. And so, um, you know, what we usually do in these patients who come in with gallstone pancreatitis, the day of the admission, once we've confirmed it's from gallstones, we get our surgeons to come by and see the patient that same day. You know, there's usually two categories of these patients. There's those who turn around very quickly, and usually within three, four days, they can go right to cholecystectomy and then home. Certainly the time that we see um, a little bit of a delay in that is those patients who really get severe pancreatitis, and then they get pancreatic ascites and all these sorts of complications of it. Those patients are challenging because the risk of putting them through a cholecystectomy when they have this you know, severe course. But ultimately, again, those are the patients you don't want to forget about because once they've do recover. If someone hasn't thought back to say, why did they get pancreatitis? Oh, we need to ultimately take out their gallbladder. Um, they could have a recurrent course. So those patients may not specifically get it in the hospital, but boy, they should have it done as soon as they're medically stable to undergo a cholecystectomy. Great. Dr. Rothstein. I'll ask one more question that has to do with education, and that is the construction of questioning. Mm -hmm. So you're very good at putting those together. Do you want to just reflect on the process and how you create the scenarios and put enough clues or right. enough things like the Maui? Right. <laughs> how, how do you construct that? Because there's an incredible art in Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I, I can truly say that I have the American College of Physicians to thank for that, giving me that skill set, having written mix-up questions since I was a GI fellow. Um, over time, I think we've seen in, in trainees who have used MixApp, you know, when I was a or even on the in-training exam, the questions used to be so long and just all of these extra sorts of things. And we've really tried to refine our question writing to say, what is the absolute 
minimum that you need to put in a question. You know, don't put all this extraneous sorts of things. Put in what they need to, to, put, to know to answer the question. If you need to add a few things to make some of the distractors plausible, you can do that. You don't need to list all of the labs if they're normal. So we've really tried to, you know, if the exam is normal, just put normal. You don't have to put the whole entire exam. Only put the key positive pertinence and negatives. Leave out the rest. Um, it, you know, that's how, that's how, and you have to look to make sure when, when we write questions, actually there's a whole, I can give a whole faculty development on how to write questions, and I've given that at Mayo. The actual, once you know what your question is that you want to write on, you actually don't start with the stem. Most people think, oh, you start with the top and kind of write all the way through. You actually think of what your question you want to ask. You write the question first, like what's the actual questions with the distractors, with your right answer in there, and then you go back and write the case, because then you're going to make that case more succinct with the details you need without that extraneous detail in, rather than if you do it the other way around. Great. Well, please join me in thanking Dr. Oxentanko for joining us. Thanks, Amy.